Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his wife and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your own heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Why am I here? What is the point of life? What's the purpose? What is the goal of my life? Of your life? They're really important questions, and they're so important that they're relevant at every stage in our lives. Teenagers and young people have to ask those questions afresh because you get to that stage where what you do has less to do with what mum and dad have arranged for you and more to do with what is directing your life and deciding what you are going to do. What seems like only a few years later, a lot of people hit what we call the midlife crisis. And you ask those questions again. There you are, perhaps, doing the same thing in the same place with the same people. And you ask afresh, what is my purpose? What am I doing with my life? And it feels like only a few years after that, I'm told, that retirement comes around. And there are all sorts of blessings to retirement. I can't wait. But it can be unsettling. 
for decades of your life. You've had so much invested in, in working 40, 50, 60 hours a week that in many ways the job was a significant part of who you were. And so when you come out of that rhythm, there's a big void in your diary. And you're left thinking, well, what is my purpose? What is my goal? It's a key question for every age and stage, but it's also important because our sinful natures fill voids with idols. That's how our broken humanity works. Our sinful nature will fill a void with an idol. And the devil has so many seemingly appealing answers to those ultimate questions to fill in the void if we haven't filled it with a biblical answer. The devil will tell you, you're here to enjoy your life. You're here to excel academically. You are here to progress and get promoted as far as you possibly can so that you can make a great name for yourself. You are here for all of those reasons, or perhaps you're at the other end of the spectrum, and in your honest response, all you want to say is, life is way too busy to ask those kind of questions. Life's too busy, life's too short, I just don't have time to think about it. Can I ask you, if you're a Christian here this morning, how would you honestly answer that question? In your heart, not necessarily in a way that you might volunteer to me after the service over coffee. If you look back over your life and think about the decisions that you have made, and if you look forwards and think about the hopes and the prayerful dreams that you may have, what is it that is determining the direction of your life? That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Over the past two weeks, We've been thinking about what it means to be part of a local church. We've thought about who is in the local church and what a blessing that is. We've thought about what it means to freely commit to one another in the local church as members of a church. This week, we're going to look at the great goal that we commit to as Christians, but particularly as members of Emmanuel Church. The next section in our church covenant reads, Empowered by the Spirit, together we seek to glorify God in all of life. Many of you will be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and you know perhaps the most famous question that is learnt by so many children and young people, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The language is very, very similar because throughout the centuries, Christians have seen that we can't find the answers to all of those questions. What is my purpose? What's my identity? What's my goal? We can't find the answer to any of those questions inside ourselves. We can only find those answers in God. You won't find it in even the most loving of marriages. You won't find it however successful your career Maybe You won't find it in any circumstance in your life. The goal and purpose of our lives is found in God himself. And because that's true, our ultimate duty and delight is to glorify God and serve him. And that fans out in every direction. We're going to see a little bit later that our covenant goes on to say that this task of glorifying God is central in our worship, our fellowship, our families, our workplaces, and our community. 
Glorifying God encompasses everything. There's no part of our lives where that is not our purpose, our goal, and our identity. But we're not going to jump straight to the do. Because there is always a danger that we put the the cart before the horse. (laughs) There are so many things going on in your life and in your heart that it is quick for us to have the wrong view of God. And then to be told we need to glorify him in all of life. Our sinful hearts and all the struggles that are going on can leave us really wrestling with that calling. So in all of what's going on in your heart and your lives, you may not have a biblical vision of God. And you may have drifted to have created an image of God that looks a whole lot more like us. And then this idea of submitting to him just seems wrong because you submit to any other human being in that kind of way. Maybe we've got the wrong idea of God because rather than seeing that we exist to serve him, actually in the way that we live our lives, we've swapped that and think that he exists to serve us. Perhaps you have been wrestling with the nature and the character of God. And unless we're reminded of his infinite goodness and grace, this idea that we're to submit everything to him might seem harsh. Perhaps you have a faulty view of how you can be right before God, how you can be saved. And it might be possible for you to think about this We're to glorify God in all of life and to misunderstand that the way that we stand before God doesn't depend on what we do for God. There are all sorts of reasons why any and all of us can struggle with this idea of glorifying God. And so before we think about anything of what we might do, I want us to think about our God being the all-glorious God he is. We were in Psalm 19 just a few weeks ago. And Psalm 19 begins with that lovely description of how the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. And I described how it doesn't matter where you look. You can look out and up with a telescope and see the the extent and the grandeur of creation. Or you can take a microscope and look down into the detail and the intricacies of all that God has made and all of it declares his glory. But there's more to the glory of God than we see reflected in the wonder of creation. And uh, Alison, Rachel, Matthew and I were reminded of that this week. We're working through this book as a staff team called Rejoice and Tremble. And on Tuesday, we were learning about a debate in the fourth century between these two men uh, called Arius and Athanasius, who probably looked nothing like that. Um, But there we go. Uh, They were debating about what God was doing before creation. Sounds like the kind of debate I had as a student at about two in the morning in the kitchen over hot chocolate. I wonder how many angels you can get on the pin of their head and all that kind of stuff. This is a fundamentally important debate. What is it about the nature of God that in one sense defines him before creation. Now, Arius said, 
that because God is the origin of everything, because he's the cause of everything, because nothing existed without God, the best way to define God is he's the one without origin. He's the unoriginated one. Now, Athanasius, the one on the right, um, he realized that Arius was trying to define God from the wrong starting point. See, Athanasius understood that the way that Arius was thinking about God made the nature and identity of God dependent upon him creating things. Such that you wouldn't understand the greatness and the glory of God unless he created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it. So what Athanasius understood was the right way to think about God is not of him primarily as creator, as great as that is, but as the one who has existed for all eternity past. Has existed in such a way that he doesn't need anything. God is entirely self-sufficient in himself. It's what theologians call his aseity. From within himself, he is utterly and completely sufficient. Paul told the crowds in Athens in Acts, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Jesus told the Jewish leaders, God has life in himself. So what was Athanasius's better way of thinking about what God was doing before the creation of the world? Who is God? Athanasius said that we can't come to a true knowledge of who God is in himself simply by looking at creation. We see who God truly is by looking at who he's revealed himself to be through his son and in his word. That's what Jesus hints at in John 5. He didn't say God has life in himself. He says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. For all eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed eternally in a joyful, glorious, and all-sufficient relationship with one another. There is a resplendent glory that has required nothing else. For the Trinitarian Godhead is utterly and completely complete. There is nothing missing from God in whom he is. More than 300 years ago, the writers of the Baptist Confession of Faith poured over the scriptures and tried to gather as best as they could a description of how God has revealed himself to us in his word and through his son. This is what they said. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, who is only immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, who is immutable, never changes, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and unrighteous will for his own glory. God having all life 
glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone, in and unto himself, all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. We don't write like that anymore, do we? But isn't it good? Do you, do I think of God like that? Is my vision of the God who has revealed himself in his word and through his son as big as that? God didn't create angels. So often we get to Revelation, we read of that wonderful description of those angelic hosts who stand there before God, created and yet professing praise for all of creation to hear. Singing worthy is the lamb who was slain and bringing glory to God. But even the angels weren't needed for God to be glorious. The universe wasn't necessary. Men and women weren't necessary to bring him glory. He doesn't derive glory from us. He has for all eternity enjoyed a perfectly fulfilling relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So why did God create you and me. He created us out of the overflowing abundance of his glory to manifest, to make known, to reveal his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. For those who don't believe in the Son whom he has revealed as his Savior of men and women, His glory will be revealed in their just judgment. But for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who have come by faith to see him as their sin-bearing and life-giving Savior, God's glory is revealed to us in his identity as our Redeemer. And that's what Mike goes into in his book, which we lovingly commends to you if you want to read it for yourself. He describes the deepest revelation of God's glory and nature being found in his identity as redeemer. And and what he does is he works through a number of different passages in Isaiah and shows how God reveals himself to us. So you get to Isaiah 54, and the Holy One who's high and lifted up is the God of all the earth. Isaiah 48, he's the maker who's own hand laid the foundations of the earth and spread out the heavens, the creation aspect. Chapter 41, he created man and commands nature. And yet Mike's point is this. You look in every single one of those passages in Isaiah, all of them describing the greatness and the power of God in creation. How does God reveal himself to Isaiah? It is as the Redeemer. So you get chapter 55, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, that description throughout the Old Testament of the faithfulness of that marriage union. That's what God is like. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. Chapter 63, you are our Father, you Lord are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. In fact, you work through Isaiah, especially the suffering servant chapters, and you realize that the one who is going to be high and lifted up, who's going to reveal the great glory of God, would be the suffering Savior. 
the Son of God, who had stepped down from the glory that is his and has been for all eternity past in order to be our Redeemer. So what we saw as we worked through John's Gospel. All the way through that Gospel, John is preparing his disciples to know that the hour is approaching when his glory would be revealed. And what would that look like? It would look like the cross. You have this amazing description of the suffering of our Savior. Winning our redemption is what reveals God's glory to us. His glory is not a glory that exists only in eternity past, but willingly has humbled himself in order to win, to buy, to redeem our eternal life. That's what John Calvin understood. He said, in all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines, but nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross. So do you see the glory of God? We don't seek to glorify him because he lacks glory in himself. We haven't been created because God has an itch, a void, a something that only we can do for him. He is entirely, gloriously, eternally self-sufficient in his glory. And we don't glorify God solely because we look around us at the wonder of everything that he's made and think that he's great and awesome, though he is, and it is. Ultimately, we seek to glorify God because out of the overflow of who he is, He has created and redeemed us to glorify and enjoy him for who he is. Who is he? He's the eternal God who knows the beginning from the end, which means you can entrust your life to him. For he not only knows it, but has lovingly planned it. He's the God, as we were thinking about in our home groups on Wednesday, who has saved you, having chosen you in eternity past. One of the lovely themes that comes out in those first few verses in Ephesians 1 that we were looking at together is his purpose in doing so. All of those lovely spiritual blessings that we were thinking about together, all of the having been predestined and called and justified and knowing that we will be glorified, all of that has a purpose. Three times in those first few verses, if you saw it, Paul says it is to the praise of his glory. That's what Paul told the Romans. For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. It's what Paul told the church in Corinth. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So our great privilege, knowing that our God is all glorious, second point, that's all we've got today, is that our goal is to bring him glory in all of life. Now we've understood who he is, we can think about how we respond. Our covenant goes on to say our goal is to glorify God in our worship, our fellowship, our families, our workplaces, and the community. Every single aspect of your life, every relationship that you have, every bit of time has a purpose. 
It isn't that you extend your career as well as possible or that you get a first-class degree from Warwick University or that you have the most loving relationship that you could ever have imagined or that you're able to see your great-great-grandchildren or any of those things. Ultimately, it is to bring glory to the God who is all-glorious. And as we do that, we find our identity and our contentment and our clarity for the future. And that's in everything that we do. So all of our worship, Sunday by Sunday, and in that Romans 12 sense, all the way through every minute of every day, all of it is to be growing out of a growing desire to glorify God, which means we don't worship him how we just think it might be okay to do so. Because he already is and has forever been and has told us how we're to worship him. In every sphere, when we gather together as a, a body of believers and in all of those Romans 12 ways of living our lives as a spiritual act of worship, he's told us how we are to bring him glory. Any other way is only going to lead to idolatry. Same is true in the way that we relate to each other. We, we call it in the covenant, our fellowship, the way that we love and serve one another. It's not the way that we might choose to do it. Because our way is still going to be tainted with sin. What's God's way? How has God told us we'll glorify him as we lovingly care for one another? We're to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Well, there's a game changer in the way that I think about my relationships with you all. Not going to consider any privilege, any status, any anything, anything. But become nothing. For our Savior, in ways that obviously I will never do, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, to be our Redeemer. But that pattern that is set by God so that we would bring glory to him is that in our relationships with one another, I die such that I may serve and bless and encourage you. Same is true when it comes to our homes and our workplaces. That's what the passage in Ephesians 5 reminds us of so challenging. And Rich is right. It, it is absolutely a solemn charge for every husband to hear. But the same is true for all of us. Whatever part in your family you may be, God has given to all of us a role in which we can bring him glory. Children can do it. Parents can do it. Husbands and wives can do it. Employees and employers can do it. In every sphere of our life, in every season of our life, in the words of our covenant, we desire to maintain a consistent Christian testimony, commending the gospel and not grieving the Holy Spirit nor bringing dishonor to the name of Christ or the church. Our goal is to glorify the all-glorious God in all of life. And our covenant goes on to describe two examples of that, outside and inside the church. Outside, we recognize our responsibility to give due honor to legitimate authorities in society. That's really poignant this weekend, isn't it? Think about the thousands upon thousands 
who have willingly, joyfully queued for way more than 12 hours to pay their respects to Her Majesty the Queen. The life she lived, the way that she she exemplified sacrifice and service has drawn so many people to admire her for all that she did. And in one sense, if I can put it like this, I don't mean to belittle the hours that people have sacrificed to pay their respects. In one sense, it's easy to honor her because her life was so commendable. And there's so much that so many people have been challenged by in her example. But remember that when Paul wrote to the Romans, he was living to the, during the Roman Empire. He was living during a period of one of the most brutal oppositions to Christianity that the history of the world has ever seen. They invented public spectacles in order to torture and kill Christians. And it's in that context that Paul writes in Romans, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. You see, Christians bring God glory by obeying him, even when it's painfully hard, as well as when it is joyful and easy. Same is true inside the church. A covenant goes on in the church. We willingly submit to the elders as they minister faithfully in prayer and the word, lead and care for us. All of us submit to the elders, myself included. As one member of this church, I also submit to the authority of the rest of the elders in our church. And we do that not because the elders get everything right. We don't. (laughs) And we know we don't. But we're to submit to the elders that God has appointed because they're God's gift to lead and care for us. Responsible before God to build us up in our faith, knowing that we are entrusted under the great shepherd to lovingly care for the church family, which means that we don't have any agenda or authority in ourselves beyond God's word. Elders aren't to use their position. And if you read around some of the horrors of what is going on in the churches at the moment, elders must never, ever use their authority to indulge their own pleasures, sinful or otherwise. Their authority is never to be used to just enforce their own personal preference. God has entrusted and charged us in ways that I was reminded afresh of what God said through Isaiah. I will not yield my glory to another. None. And definitely not elders. Who in the opportunities that we have to publicly proclaim the glory of God and the grace that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ must not ever seek to draw glory to themselves. And would you pray for my soul in that? That there would never be a Sunday when my desire in standing before you is for you to give me any glory. The glory is his for who he is and for what he has done. That we have a gospel to share with each other and with a lost world. That they too can come to know the grace and the forgiveness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the elder's role. It is to shepherd the sheep. What's the The responsibility of a shepherd, it is to protect the sheep, to feed the sheep, and to get them safely home. 
good day. It's the same responsibility for the pastors in the church. To lovingly, at the expense of themselves, feed the flock. Protect the flock. And with every fiber of our being, trusting all of our work to the nature of the Spirit, to ensure that we all make it safely home. And that is what we're called to submit to as we pray and preach and lead and care in such a way that we care for each other. It's how elders glorify God in the church. But for all of us, for all that we've seen in every sphere of life, in every season of life, I hope that you're seeing (laughs) that the calling to glorify God is enormous. And it is. I think sometimes as Christians, we have an idea that Christianity is important, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but then we're still looking for something that's going to be the game changer. The glory of God is the great duty and delight of every single Christian. But not only is it an enormous calling, this is where I want to encourage us all as we finish, it is also a calling that gives us dignity. Every single one of us is going to wrestle with those questions from time to time. Why am I here? What's the purpose? What is the goal? Perhaps as you think about those questions this week, your life has been full of sleep-deprivingly bad pain. Perhaps as you reflect on the last couple of weeks, you've had that season of anxiety and fear as you have got into a new school or a new workplace. Perhaps your home or wherever you work is just a hard place to be. And you're asking these questions afresh. If your identity, if your purpose in life was tethered to all of those things being neat and tidy and pain-free, you will never know the peace and the contentment that comes from knowing that you are a man and woman made in the image of God and as a Christian redeemed by the Son of God. But because our identity and our purpose are in Him, and because our purpose is to bring Him glory, we can do that wherever He calls us to be. We can endure suffering, knowing that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We can trust God in our fears. We can bring them to him knowing that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can love and serve in the home and the workplace knowing that sometimes God calls us to be patient and stay rather than wait to be moved on to somewhere else. Our goal, our satisfaction, isn't always to change things. It's to bring God glory where he has placed us. And that brings great dignity to everything we do. We are not a people whose 
sense of worth and hope and identity will only be achieved when we get that job, marry that person, have X number of children, live in a particular home, and everything is going well. We are a people who know that our God is all glorious. And he has not only saved us, but shown us how we can bring him glory wherever he has called us to be. I had the privilege of interviewing someone for membership recently, and she shared that one of her favorite passages is Colossians 1, where Paul writes, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And what thrilled the heart of my sister as she shared that is that it is possible for us to please him. Despite being born in our sin, despite still wrestling with our sin, despite all of the things that you may have done or not done over the course of this past week that you know aren't in keeping with his glory. Through the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace and the grace and the grace and the grace that he pours upon us, we know that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So be encouraged. Our God is all glorious. And we are called to glorify him in all of life. But he gives us the grace to do so. So that we may enjoy him. We're going to have a moment just to pray before we sing our closing song. I, I've had a full week. But in the course of the week, God has humbled me to see that all too often my view of him is too small. Too often I put myself at the center. Think more of God serving me than of me serving him. And... Perhaps there is an area of your life as there is in mine where we need to recommit ourselves to seeking to glorify him. It's particularly struck this week by the need to ask for God's help to glorify him where he's put me and not where I'd like him to move me. So why don't we have a time just to pray. To pray perhaps with praise and thanksgiving for who God is but certainly to pray that God would help us glorify him in all of life.